Welcome back. This is Embracing Your Virtue with Samantha Jasmine. I'm here with Susie LaHood and Sai Hoekstra, two of the three editors of the new book, Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond. And we're just going to jump right back into this great discussion that we're having. Let me jump into that because, you know, the, like you said, the book mentions everything from decolonization, from policy, immigration, like abortion. Like, I mean, there's a whole range of subjects, race and culture. Um, but we'll, let's talk, touch on a few uh, mm-hmm. for the sake of time. Let's start with uh, abortion. Um, I think that the pro-life movement um, and those who are pro-life, um, you know, that particular issue has been um, a vital reason in why evangelicals remain committed to voting for Donald Trump or to the Republican party as a whole. Um, and so I thought there were such great essays in your book. Um, I think Randall Balmer, I learned a lot from his essay and he mentions, he talks about the, the rise of the religious right um, starting from the seventies um, and how the primary goal at that point was less about um, abortion per se, but more so about keeping um, keeping Christian schools segregated um, and that abortion became almost um, knowing the growing concern amongst evangelicals about abortion that that almost became a tool to establish a base to really fight something else. I'm roughly paraphrasing. Forgive me, Randall. Um, <laughs> so, um, if we can touch on that and, you know, and just touch on that a little bit and how it's changed since then. Yeah, I think you summarized it well. He's um Randall Balmer is a historian from here in New York City. He's at Barnard College. And he, um, he, he does explain, interestingly, that, you know, for several years after Roe versus Wade was decided, evangelicals were not, either not saying anything about it at all or actually supporting it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even like the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, all, you know, you go through it, you go through the names uh, who today would be completely on the, the other side. Uh, they were not at the time of the decision. And it was later, you know, at the end of the 70s, the early 80s, when kind of Jerry Falwell and other people who were who were consolidating the, the voting bloc that would become known as the moral majority um, were trying to uh, to do that consolidation. They were, were the ones who decided to, to try and start using abortion as a wedge issue. And obviously that has... It was very successful. It's, kind of, it's, been, it's been successful for 40 years. It's been something... But it, it was not before that, right? Like that's, that's, it, it is not a historical inevitability that today Christians all over the country would be saying, you know, you are uh, against God if you are voting for any candidate who supports uh, abortion in any way. So that's, that's the kind of historical background. And then um, we do get, you know, further into the, the numbers and the other issues uh, after that. That's great. And I think it's, I think it's really important too to just drive home what we really summarized really well for me. It's this idea that that abortion has been used just sort of as a tool, uh, almost manipula- manipulation. It's almost been weaponized um, in the in the service of something else. And and I think that obviously that phenomenon continues today. And it's ironic to me because I've heard folks say that they like Trump because he tells it like it is. You know, he speaks to you straight. And, and one of the things that we 
thought was important to get across in this book, one of the reasons why we felt that was an important piece to include was one, yes, it talks about abortion in a way that I think is really important for people to see and understand, but just in general too, to know that um, you can't take some of these arguments at face value. You need to understand that there are ways that these arguments are being instrumentalized um, some ways against you and against your broader values, um, particularly, I think, as a personal faith. So, um, you know, if obviously, if we, we claim to represent um, Christ in, and wanting to uphold the Imago Dei in all people, then obviously we shouldn't be standing up for things um, like segregation of schools or supporting a platform that enables white supremacy. Um, and I think that's how we see that argument at play today. Yes, so well said. Um, I'd like to talk about David French's essay. Um, I thought what was really interesting in his essay is he really broke down the influence that the, the president of the United States has on abortion laws or even reducing abortion rates and ratios. Um, let's talk about that. Can you guys give us a little more insight from that essay? Um, about some of the, the highlights there. Yeah, that was one that we thought was really important um, to have in there, largely because he makes that argument very clearly that, you know, uh, the abortion ratio over the last 30 years has consistently gone down across all presidencies, that basically no matter how many uh, judges the Republicans managed to appoint, and they've appointed the vast majority of them since Roe, nothing has changed. Roe is still there. <laughs> and even if the the white whale was caught, as it were, and Roe versus Wade were overturned, uh, all, all that basically means is that the states then get to choose uh, what happens. And he would he like he cites some studies that say probably that the best that you're looking at is twelve or thirteen percent reduction in the abortion rate. Uh, and then you know I would add uh, that's that's the legal abortion rate. You don't know how many of those you know, abortions that are, that are not happening legally anymore are just happening in a back alley somewhere. Right. Mm. So his main point was it, it is really not the question that he asked at the beginning, he had someone accuse him on Twitter because he says he's not voting um, for Trump, even though he's voted for Republicans and he's a, he's a big part of the pro-life movement, you know, accuse him of you basically have the blood of unborn children on your hands if you don't vote for Donald Trump. And so the whole essay is explaining why that's, that's actually not the case. Right, right. So great. Yeah, I, I really appreciated how he just broke down about the influence of Supreme Court over time, as you mentioned, um, and just even just the reality that it becomes, even if Roe v. Wade is removed, it becomes a state's issue. Yeah. Right. And there there is a large majority of people who are in favor of abortion and who will still influence state decisions in, in different places. Um, and I, I thought... Um, Tying into that, there was an essay that was anonymous called Where Love Ends. Mm -hmm. And I thought what was so great about that is that it changed the focus on like, okay, if you're, if you're fighting for life, let's talk about how we can do that in a more granular level and like, like ways that really matter. Um, and I love the fact that she talked about it first from a position of quality of life and and what it looks like for people who have disabilities for example mm -hmm. um, and just even thinking about you know how many abortions are made um she didn't 
quote a specific number, but just how we make decisions about life based on what we think is quality, right? Like if, if someone has any type of disability or um, some type of neurological damage, things like that. You know, um, Susie, you're a mom, so you might have had the similar conversations with your prenatal care, maybe, maybe not. You know, there are these, these genetic pets that they want to run, right? And, like, they give you these percentages, like, what's the chance that your, your baby might have Down syndrome or some other kind of um, disease at birth? And the conversation for me was, well, let's do this early so that you can make decisions, Right. Um, you know, and I was like, well, for me, it didn't really matter. Right. I'm like, well, let's find out so I could figure out how to plan for support if that happens. But, but, you know, there's still quality of life in that. So I thought that was really interesting. And then, um, she talks about a bunch of other ways too, that we can, how we can influence, um, individuals choices around abortion and looking at access to healthcare, looking at affordability and a million other things. But um, so I just wanted to know your thoughts on that particular essay and even asking the question of how is voting for Donald Trump or a platform similar to Donald Trump, how can that even influence or cause a spike in abortion rates? I, I think, um, you know, you've, you've summarized it well. I think, you know, one of the, the, the main points that's in, in the Where Love Ends essay is that, you know, if you fundamentally believe, if your, if your ideology is the conservative one, that America is an exceptional meritocracy and that if you, uh, you know, are poor, it's just because you failed to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, you, haven't, you haven't availed yourself of the advantages that America offers you, then, um, you know, that's your fault. And, and so it becomes very difficult to, legitimately invest in those types of people, right? Trump is, has been very focused on cutting lots of different kinds of aid to poor people. Um, he's been very focused on, excuse me, you know, uh, uh, increasing police presence in minority neighborhoods, over-policing, uh, just demeaning and devaluing all different kinds of people. And, and those types of things are actually taken into account by people who are wondering whether or not to bring a child uh, into this world. And, you know, because Christians don't make that connection, um, Donald Trump can, can rely on them to not see the ways that, that he and his ideology and his way of thinking um, are, are, are actually creating the circumstances in which a lot of people are going to choose abortion. Yeah. 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 And, Absolutely. And I think one of the, the powerful points that's raised in that, that anonymous essay, the reference is even this idea, like we should, as a Christian community, if we talk about being pro-life, and I know it's almost become a cliche that, you know, if you're going to talk about being pro-life, you need to be pro all of life. And, and even that goes to this idea that why, why aren't Christians leading the conversation on inclusion? Mm-hmm. and on providing for people who are who are differently able and and incorporating them into society in ways that allow them to thrive yes. um and why why are we the ones who more often than not are fighting against things like the affordable care act not to get too much into concrete policy but when you talk about individuals with pre-existing conditions and um 
it just, I mean, just to tie back into your argument, why is it that we take such a strong stance on this single policy issue and ignore all the others that would fall under this idea of being pro-life? Right. Well said. Well said. Yes. Um, so let's, let's move into religious rights. Um, we, we talked about it a little bit in kind of like its inception and or growth since the 70s. Um, but, you know, it's it's another issue that I think has become important um, and that I hear is that, oh, like Donald Trump will help preserve our religious freedoms as Christians in America. And if, if we're telling people not to vote for Donald Trump, why should they consider forfeiting that issue? I mean, I to be, to be quite frank, I, I sort of struggle um, and I kind of showed my hand a little bit earlier in saying that I I grew up outside the United States in, in Uzbekistan, um, a country where it was um, where um, Christians were persecuted in, in the, the really almost like biblical sense of the word. Like I grew up in a country where you would be arrested for going to Bible study. I knew friends who were arrested because their apartment was raided while they were trying to study the Bible together. Um, and where we had to, you know, be careful when we were, leaving a Bible study to go out in groups of two or three, it staggered so that we wouldn't draw attention to the fact that that's what we were doing. And I just, when I look at the United States today, I just wonder, is this another way that we're sort of um, being hoodwinked a little bit into thinking that we're being persecuted as a community? Um, And really what's happening is that that issue is being weaponized to push us in a certain direction that I think is actually counter to our values. So is it possible that we are having these discussions about religious freedom and we think that what we're fighting for is our religious freedom and really what we're doing maybe is killing the witness of the church because we're um, we're not standing up for the issues that we should be standing up for, which are, you know, as you, you spoke about earlier, the, the issues of, of caring for the poor, the poor and the oppressed and um, you know, we're not the ones who are the first to fight against separation of families and, um, and, and just caring about those who are, you know, caring for the other, mm-hmm. this ethic of, of bracing who are unlike you and seeing into their lived experiences and, um, having those points of intersection so that you're not just voting for what makes your life easiest and most comfortable but you're seeing how your choices influence others in society as well and allowing that to weigh just as heavily when you're discerning your, your political decision. So, um, yeah, I think I would just want to critique that whole framing of the, the conversation. And also because I think that unfortunately the whole religious liberty issue, I feel like oftentimes more oftentimes than not is used as a point to, um, I think, discriminate a lot lot of times against other groups and other people. Why isn't our highest priority exhibiting an ethic of love? I think that should be our highest priority as followers of Christ. Um, There's a great quote by Janelle Austin in her essay. And um, yeah, she she talks about, uh, she says, what is important is that your life is intersecting with the lives of people who are different from you and that you allow their experiences to expand your understanding of how your vote impacts their livelihoods. And I think that really sums up a, a lot of the, the goal of this book. Um, yeah, but sorry to set you off. Sorry. No, that's fine. Let's, let's end with that. That's a good way to end that question. <laughs>
Awesome. So guys, we're going to, um, this has been a great discussion and we're winding down. So any final thoughts before we end the segment? I think, I mean, you know, the, the main thing that we're, or one of the main things that we're trying to do with the book, right, is, is just counter the narrative. Like Susie said at the beginning, that Trump is the de facto choice, which has been the narrative for so long, just Christians support Donald Trump, period. That's been the narrative, right? So we, you know, you mentioned, we mentioned the political diversity in the book, uh, the ethnic diversity, people from, from all different backgrounds, uh, different evangelical traditions, a couple of non-evangelical traditions as well. Um, we were just trying to present a wide array of food for thought. And, and I think no matter who you are, you're going to find something in the book that you both resonate with very strongly and something that's going to challenge you rather deeply. And, and um, so we, we hope that uh, everybody reads it. Awesome. If I could just touch on another, I think, common misconception about this, this project in this book uh, I feel like a lot of people think that we're we're coming for Trump supporters, you know, that because we wrote this book, we hate people who support Trump. And yeah. and I think that the tragic reflection of our current political discourse and yeah. our society today, and I think that unfortunately this administration has contributed to this atmosphere and this this idea that if you disagree with someone, that you must hate them. And, and it's counter to the character of Christ and, uh, you know, the, the values that, that we claim to represent as believers. And so if I could just take your uh, your snippet there as an opportunity to just highlight the fact that we're not writing this book as, uh, as a way to, um, to uh, sort of demonize people or... Um, yeah, really, this is our love letter to our families and friends who also, uh, you know, support Donald Trump or are planning to cast their vote for him. And it's sort of our heartfelt plea that they would take a moment to pause and listen to these other voices that yeah. we think could maybe inform their vote and help them to discern in, in a broader way. So that also goes into what you're saying, Clyde, that like, that's part of why we, we did this project, why we put this book together. But just to throw that out there because I think it's important for people to understand as they engage with this content. Hi, Susie. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This has been a wonderful discussion. Guys, we encourage you to pick up the book. Once again, it's called Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond. You can find it on all major platforms or you can also visit the website keepingthefaithbook.com for more information on where you can buy the book and also all of the authors and editors that contributed to it. Sai, Susie, thank you again for joining and stay tuned, guys, for more videos from me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much.